Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Carol Ann Flood, and I'm the worship director here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life, or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by His Word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in Him. A man by the name of Larry Walters resided in California and eventually would earn himself the nickname Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, Lawn Chair Larry was a truck driver by trade, so he traveled all over the U.S. hauling rigs on semi-trailers and whatnot. And so what he did or what he decided one day was that he was bored. He was sick of the status quo. He was sick of just doing the same thing over and over. So he was in his garage. I mean, a lot of us, especially guys, like you can picture this, right? You're sitting in a garage, you're looking around like, what can I do to spice things up right now? So he looks over and finds himself this lawn chair and he has this idea. He says, what if I hook up a bunch of weather balloons to this lawn chair and I wanna see if I could fly on my own? I mean, where could that go wrong, right? So this is what he does. He gets his hands on 45 weather balloons, fills them with helium. It actually looks like this. This is a video. You can watch it if you look it up online. But he actually, he hooks up in a lawn chair, he hooks up 45 of these balloons, and he brings with him a couple of things that he might need for his little saunter up to see his neighborhood. This is what he said. I wanted to see my neighborhood from a different perspective because he was Board. So he hooks up these weather balloons and he brings with him a peanut butter and a peanut butter sandwich. Makes sense, right? It's like who knows how long you're gonna be up there. You could get hungry, you might want to eat something, a six-pack of beer, because he's like, I'm gonna enjoy this experience. And then he brings him a BB gun. And here was his plan, okay? He, it's actually, you watch the video, he starts off on the roof, he has a friend help him, and they kind of cut this rope. And what he thought was he was just gonna float to the top, hover at a nice altitude, you know, shoot a couple of those balloons with his BB gun and kind of just level off and hang out for a while. And when he was done, shoot a couple more and easily saunter back down. Uh, that's not what happened to Lawn Chair Larry. What they said, and if you watch the video, the guy takes off like a rocket ship. I mean, he shoots straight up and he panics just like most of us would do. So what he said, he was interviewed later after this thing. They said, what did you do when you shot up so quickly? He's like, man, I got so nervous. I did the only thing I knew how to do when I was scared. I just started drinking that beer. <laughs> he starts chugging them. It thins out his blood alcohol content. Larry passes out. He's in his lawn chair, he's hovering, he's in California. So this is, this is how the story ends. Two and a half hours later, the Los Angeles International Airport gets a report from a 747 pilot of an unidentified flying object hovering, wait for it, at 16,547 feet. This did not go the way Larry had intended. Here's the transmission from the pilot to the tower. He goes, I'm not exactly sure how to describe this, but it looks like a completely motionless figure sitting in what looks like a lawn chair holding a rifle. <laughs> so in a rescue attempt that would make Chuck Norris proud, SWAT helicopters go up, they repel, they're able to rescue him, grab him, pull him into the helicopter, bring him back down. And then this is one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. He was issued a citation he was issued a $4,000 ticket for impeding air traffic. 
Can you imagine this? I mean, like this live. And so he becomes this celebrity overnight and he tries to go on this speaking circuit and a reporter is interviewing him because obviously the world had some questions. So here's the three questions she asked. She said, number one, were you scared? And he goes, oh yeah, I was scared. I was definitely scared. The thing took off. All I did, I started drinking. I was terrified. Question number two, a lot of us would be wondering this. Would you do it again? And he goes, no, no, I would not. I would not go back up to 16,547 feet again, totally passed out, wondering why airplanes are passing me. No, I would not do that a second time. And then the last question was this, why then, Larry, did you do it? And he said, here's his answer, I was just tired of sitting around. So he sat around in the air. Does it make sense? I don't know. Here, here's the truth, okay? This is something a lot of us would agree with. Isn't it true that we do dumb stuff when we're bored? Yes. Right? Especially, I mean, when I was in my middle school years, high school years, and then I really hit my peak of stupidity in college, it's like when you're bored, you just tend to do dumb stuff. So, but this is true. This is true larger in life too. We make dumb decisions when we're bored in our marriage. We make dumb decisions when we are bored at work. We make dumb decisions when we're bored at home. We make dumb decisions when it comes to family. We, we make dumb decisions when we're bored. What happens when people get bored in the local church? What happens when people get bored here? Or in Big C Church or the Kingdom of God? What happens when people get bored? I, I think we make a lot of bad decisions. And then what happens is it brings with us or it brings to us this whole plethora of human emotion that is not ever what God intended for all of us. What happens is we get consumed with the wrong things. We get consumeristic. We get greedy, lazy, entitled, selfish, and easily enticed by whatever temptation comes our way. Fill in the blank. So often we just kind of get sucked in like, an amoeba when we're bored or when we're not experiencing what God has actually intended for us to experience as a part of his church since the very beginning. When we're bored, we just make bad decisions. So here's what happens. Before we know it, we are totally off mission with our lives. We're angry at the church for failing to meet our expectations. We're distant from God and we willingly give our hearts away to whatever is most appealing in the moment. Can anybody relate Maybe it's now, maybe it's in a previous season, maybe it's a previous church, whatever it is. So often when we get bored or when we stop doing the thing that God has created us to do and to be a part of, when we miss that or forget that, we get bored. Here's what I want to tell you today. It's about the church. The church, the capital C church, the kingdom of God is the most fulfilling, exhilarating, fruitful, purpose-filled mission that you could ever give your life to. Hands down, bar none, it is the best thing that you could ever give your life to. It is anything but boring. So if that's true, and if that's the case, why are so many Christians in our world, in our country, and in this church, why are so many just bored? We're gonna answer that today. I think it's because we forget what we were originally intended and created to do. So this is week four right now. We're in a series, it's called Pursued, and it's all about how God is a pursuing God. 
It's all about how, how God has gone after us and, and chased us and pursued us relentlessly from the beginning of time, and we're going to start at the beginning of the Bible, all the way to the end of time and to the end of the Bible. It's a story of God pursuing his people relentlessly over and over and over and over and over. He's not, I said this first service, he's not like an introverted, distant, you know, kind of hands-off type of God that waits for people to kind of meander into his presence. He goes ballistic. He's the most extroverted God ever that just pursues and chases and, and bugs and reminds and calls and invites. I mean, he goes after people like crazy. And the story, it's evident all throughout scripture because he loves us. It's a God so overwhelmingly in love with his people that he will do anything it takes to pursue his lost children. So we're in week four. We've talked about different things that God created and why he created them through this lens of pursuit. And today we're talking about the church. Today we're talking about the local church. We're talking about this, this group of people. On the, there was a mountain, this is during the time of Jesus, there's a mountain that Jesus and his disciples were on, and Peter, one of the older disciples, kind of blurts out like he normally did. He, he blurted out to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I know you're the son of God. I know you're the son of God. I know you're the Messiah that was promised to us through the prophets for thousands of years. I know you are him. And Jesus, blown away, goes, oh man, blessed are you, Simon, because his name was Simon Peter. He said, blessed are you, Simon, because God revealed that to you. But then here's what Jesus says right after. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, which means Petros, right? In Greek, Petros, which means rock. And he says, and on this rock, not talking about Peter, not talking about the mountain that they're standing on, but he's saying this rock, this claim, this truth, that I am who you have just declared I am on this foundation of my identity as the Son of God, as the Savior, as the Messiah of the world, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus makes a declaration. Peter declares, you're it, you're him. And Jesus goes, I am. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna build something and it's gonna be mine. The church is Jesus. He died for it. He bled for it. The words we've been saying today, he bled for my pardon. Jesus paid a price for his church and it is his. So often I make the mistake, uh, maybe you do this too. You ever say my church? Like maybe you're out and about or talking or whatever, talking to your family, neighbors, whatever. Oh yeah, my church, we do this. Right? I, I say that and I've been catching myself even recently just going, this isn't my church. This is the church where I attend. This is the church where I serve. This is the, the local expression of church that I'm a part of, but the church is Jesus. He bought it. He paid for it. Jesus reiterates, he says, and it, and it would have been like, whoa, like almost taken aback by his disciples because he doesn't say it, it's God's church. He says, it's my church. Peter just declared, you're the son of God. And Jesus goes, yep, and it's my church. Let's go back to that side here. So he talks about, go back one here, go back to the, the scripture, there we go. So Matthew 16, so he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Such a significant verse, it's gonna show up later even in today's sermon, but he says, I'm gonna build this church and it is gonna be a force to be reckoned with. I'm gonna build this church and it's gonna have so much energy, so much inertia, so much movement that every opposition from hell itself will be obliterated in the process. Like a raging river flowing up to some sort of barrier. As that river flows, the weight and the rushing of the water would obliterate anything that tries to stop it. Jesus is saying to his disciples right at the beginning, my church is powerful. 
My church is, cannot be stopped. My church is like a freight train that will just continue moving and plowing through obstacle after obstacle after obstacle of death, of doubt, of lies, division, disparity, brokenness, cancer. Jesus says, my kingdom is above all of those. And even hell cannot slow us down for what we're doing. And then he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes this powerful declaration about this is my church. This is mine. We're going to do this. We're going to do this together. The word church that he uses is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia was not a religious word at the time, but has sort of become one now over the years. Ecclesia simply meant group of people. So the church from the very beginning, when Jesus described it, it was about a group of people, but that wasn't the first time that the church was described not as a building, not as a religion, but as a group of people. It actually goes back to one of the most important stories in all of Scripture. It's Genesis chapter 12. It starts with verse 1, and it says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That's important. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here's the problem with the nation language. When God spoke this to Abram or Abraham as his name would change shortly, when God spoke this, what God was saying is your descendants are gonna be so many, like your kids are gonna have kids who have kids who have kids and generations will come from you, so much so that you can look at the sand on the seashore and say your offspring will outnumber the, the little grains of sand. Or God said, one to, he said to him one night, look, look up in the sky, middle of the night, right? There's no light pollution or anything. He says, look, you see all the stars? There's no way you could ever count those. That will be like your descendants. That was an amazing, incredible covenant, invitation that God made to Abraham. There was just one problem. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. That was the issue. That's a big issue. Because God says, I, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to turn you into a nation and a people. But he can't father children. What the text tells us actually is it wasn't Abraham, it was Sarah. Sarah was infertile. And so, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, imagine the desire to have a baby, to have your own child, and it's a series of monthly disappointments over and over and over and over again. Abraham is 75 years old when God makes this covenant with him. Imagine, maybe not 75 years, but whatever that is, 50 years of repeated monthly disappointments over and over and over again. So imagine now the hope that Abraham feels, that Sarah feels, but like they're getting up there in years. And it's almost like, God, have you paid attention to our age? But we trust you, but okay. 10 years goes by and not a child was conceived. 10 years. Okay, so you've already done this now 50 years or so. So another 10, still no child. So I'll fast forward this quick, but Abraham and Sarah devise a plan. And basically Sarah says, why don't you just sleep with one of our servants? And so maybe that's what God intended. You'll produce an heir that way. And that wasn't God's plan. It worked. They got pregnant or she got pregnant. 
They gave birth to a son, his name was Ishmael, but what God said, he went back and reiterated his promise. He said, nope, there will be a child between Abraham and Sarah, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. The creation, or the intended creation of the church was blessed to be a blessing. I'm going to give to you so that you will give. Abram waited until he was 99 years old. He waited 24 years after God's initial promise to him that you would have a child. 24 years later, they finally conceive, and when Abraham is 100 years old, they finally give birth to Isaac. Can you imagine, especially parents in the room, what you would feel after waiting so many decades for your own child? as you hold him, as you look at him, as you develop him, as you play with him, you hold him when he cries or gets hurt. You imagine raising this child, the love that you would have for this child and the appreciation you would have for God who gave you that gift. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Here's where the wheels fall off. Genesis chapter 22, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. I mean, can you imagine you're 100 years old. Now, actually, Abraham's much older. What it says is Isaac, around this time, was probably late 20s to 30s. So you, you've seen him grow. You've seen him become a young adult. And so you just love him. He's your only child between you and Sarah. So you just love this child. And what God says is, I want you to kill him. I want you to kill him. It was a test. Abraham didn't know it was a test. It was not abnormal for gods in this time to ask for sacrifices of other humans. It just wasn't. So God, but God said he was different. God said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. You will be my people. So Abraham trusts God. Look what happens. It says the next day they went up. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. I want you to pay attention to the imagery here. So Isaac, the son, the son who is loved, and he's repeated over and over, the only son whom you love. Who else does that sound like in scripture? Sounds like the person of Jesus, the only son the one who was deeply loved by his father. The wood is strapped to Isaac's back as he walks up a mountain, very similar to Jesus, who had wood on his back that he carried up a mountain where he would later hang and die on. You see the parallel here? God is orchestrating a foreshadowing of the most important event in history. He's setting it up. So he put the wood... Uh, for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He's not a dummy. He's looking around. He's carrying the wood. He's seeing where they're going. He knows they're going to make a sacrifice. He can see it. He's paying attention, and he's looking around, and he's drawing the conclusion, I'm the only thing breathing here other than Abraham. So he asks his dad, what are we doing? And here's Abraham's response. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This is setting up the most important story in history. 
even the phrase, God himself. This is teeing up, Abraham does not know what's about to happen. The very words he's using are so important because it's pointing to the person of Jesus who would come thousands of years later, who would pay the ultimate sacrifice with his life for his church, for the people that many of them don't know him. Many of those put him on the cross. Many of them rejected Jesus as here I am, I'm going to the cross and I'm dying for them. God himself would make the sacrifice. Here's how the story ends. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. Watch this. This is like last possible second. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. I mean, I'm bad. he's holding the knife. The panic is in Isaac's eyes. Like, what is happening? And here's what God says. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, there it is again. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns or by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Here's what's so different about this story versus any other God in that time, versus any other God to ever have, have supposedly existed. God provided his own sacrifice for us. Every other God, every other religion, it cost you. You did wrong, you must make right, it cost you. God says, it's different with me. You did do wrong, you need to make right, but you can't so I will make right on your behalf. Blown away, here's what Abram says, or Abraham says to close out this story. As he looks back, he says, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What scholars argue about today, this is really cool, just a nugget for you. What scholars argue about today is the same mountain that Isaac was about to be sacrificed on would be the same mountain that Jesus would be sacrificed on for our behalf. Here's the disagreement. Some say it is the same mountain. Others say they're next to each other. I don't know how to draw a conclusion based on that, but to point, I mean, God's going, look how significant this is. I'm connecting all of it. I'm, I'm connecting it all together. Do you see how God is such a pursuing God that he loves humanity, he loves his creation, he loves his people, he loves his church so much so that he pays the sacrifice on our behalf. The ram was just a setup. Jesus was the culmination of the sacrifice that God would make on our behalf for people who rejected him. God is such a pursuing God. So this big movement, big statement, whatever, it's this. If God is a pursuing God, then his church is a pursuing church. What he invited us to in Abraham, when you, he said you will be blessed to be a blessing, what he invites us to do is to be a pursuing people. Not to be a pursuing building, not to sit back and wait for people to come here, but to be a church that goes out and pursues people into the brokenness, into the pain, into the desolation, into the desert areas, into the places where evil and sin and brokenness have a stronghold. Because what God says, what Jesus said to his disciples, man, my church is a force that can't be stopped. 
We have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The gates of hell are going to try to hold back. They're going to try to protect. They're going to try to keep us out, wherever. But the kingdom of God penetrates everything. Like a flowing river. The same mountain that Jesus had this interaction with, with Peter on, as we started at the beginning. It was actually, the mountain was called Mount, I'll say it here. Wait for it. Mount Hermon. So look it up, Mount Hermon. What's so significant about Mount Hermon is it was the source of the Jordan River that fed the Israelite people. It was the very source of the river. It was the same river that Jesus was baptized in. That river flowed down into the community. The imagery that the disciples would have had, Jesus is standing on the mountain where the source of the Jordan River flowed in and brought life, brought flourishing, brought nourishment, but the, the same mountain where it began, Jesus is saying, and my church is gonna be just like this, like a flowing river. What barrier, what boundary can you put in place that a river can't eventually destroy? God's saying, this is my church. This is what I'm inviting you into. This is what I'm inviting you to be a part of. This is what I'm inviting you to do. It's to give your life to be a pursuing people because we have a God that pursued us. We are called to be a church that does that on the front lines. You've heard this the last couple weeks. We can't be a country club church. We can't be the type of church that waits for people to come here, for brokenness to come here. What we need to be, and it's even in our DNA, it's in our name, we need to be a church that moves to the front lines of brokenness, of despair, of hatred, of division, of death, both in our community and all over the world. We're called to be the church that moves to the front lines like a river would move to places that are dry and arid. I mean, I'm just blown away. I could tell you story after story after story of things, atrocities that happen here in our city. And you know what's funny about the church or what's funny about people just in general, I won't say just the church, but about people in general is we, we have a resistance to brokenness as we should. We have a resistance to it. We don't like it. We don't like looking at it. We don't like seeing it for what it is. We don't like hearing stories of death or stories of just division, stories of damage, stories of bondage. We don't like hearing stories of these, especially when they're our own. But what we're called to do is to lean into those stories as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven to release chains, to bring life out of death to bring hope into despair. What we're called to do is represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who, who said to his disciples, I'm gonna hand you the keys of heaven so that everywhere you go, every place you go that's full of division or strife or sin or brokenness or addiction, when you come, a force that has never been reckoned with can release all of those chains. That's what we're called to do. Our city's full of them, full of areas of brokenness, full of areas of pain, full of areas of, of despair that most of us, if, if we could build our own lives, we would say, I don't ever want to go there. And here's what God has called us and invited us to do. It's not to sit in a chair and to be bored out of our mind. It's not to play defense. What God has called us to do is to get up out of the chair, to get off of the sidelines, to play the game of the kingdom of heaven and usher it in to places that haven't yet been reached. That's what he's created us to do. So most of us in the room, most of us watching online, you might say this, I totally agree, 
totally agree that the church should do that, then why don't we do it? Why don't we look for it? Why doesn't that orient our lives? For this reason, it's costly. It's expensive. It's painful. It requires of us what we're often not willing to give. Here's what Abraham demonstrated. Following God comes with sacrifice. Here's what God demonstrated. I sacrifice myself for my people. And then the calling for the church is we lay our lives down so that others might live. Abraham set the table. Jesus fulfilled it. We're called to mirror and to reflect what Jesus did on the cross. And here's what Jesus promises. We win. We win. When you lose your life, you gain your life. When you give it up, you gain it. You actually find it. You experience the hope and the joy and the adrenaline that so many of us long for in the church and yet have been boiled down to an hour-long service of singing and listening. God has something so much more for the church. He's got so much more for our church. The question is, are you willing to pay the sacrifice to do it? My snowblower broke uh, like a week and a half ago. And you remember like all the crazy snow that we had? I mean, just dumping and dumping and dumping. Um, I noticed as I was using my snowblower, like it was just leaking. So I bought it used. Uh, I, I'm not an engines person. If you know me like on a personal basis, you know, I, don't, I know how to fill it up with gas. And that's about, it's like, oh, I'm maxed out. Any other questions beyond that? I'm not quite sure how to answer. I don't know how it works. People try to explain, they use analogies. I don't get it. My dad, when we were younger, used to drag me into the garage and be like, I'm gonna teach you how to change the oil. I'm gonna teach you how to rotate the tires. I'm gonna teach you how to do all this stuff. Otherwise, you're gonna have to pay somebody to do it. I'm here to tell you, I'm an adult. I'm a fully grown male. And I love paying other people to fix that junk that I detest. I love it, okay? So understand this. Now my thing's leaking. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I don't know how to fix it. So what do I, I call somebody. I reach out. I call this guy that I found online. I said, hey, snowblower's broken. No idea. He starts asking me questions. I tell him what I just told you. I have no idea what I'm doing. Okay. I know how to fill it up with gas. He goes, tell you what, I'll show up at your house. I was like, cool. That's awesome. I don't even have to load it up. Like he's just going to come and show up. So he shows up. I get to know this guy. Um, it's like four degrees out. So I'm freezing, okay? Picture this, it's very cold. I'm out, I'm in my garage, he's talking, he runs it back and forth. He's explaining head gasket this and oil that and blah, 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 whatever. He's talking and I just say, tell me about you. Like, why do you do this? Why, why do you do this? And he goes, well, I'm a disabled vet. Served in the military for 15 years. I said, thank you so much for your service. And he starts articulating the things that he did. I just start listening. I just start asking questions. Here's what he tells me. 15 years in the army, uh, he ended up becoming an officer. I don't remember what rank. He was a helicopter pilot. And his job was to fly the helicopter into uh, basically very broken and dangerous areas all over our world. And he would run rescue missions. He would fly his helicopter in and he would pick up uh, army or Navy or Marines, or Air Force. He, he would go and pick up guys that had been critically wounded. Um, into some of the most dangerous situations ever and he would load them up and either he was flying the helicopter back to get them to safety or he was in the back doing CPR trying to bring them back. And he had story after story after story after story of people he lost. And he goes, dude, I just couldn't stop. 
I had to keep going. I had to keep going. I had to keep going. And he, after 15 years of his service, he now has issues with his head, issues with his gastrointestinal system, issues with his back. His leg goes numb. He gets neuropathy. He'll just fall over. He's got ulcers. I mean, he, he, he starts sharing this. Then he goes, yeah, it cost me two divorces. The guy's 35 years old. Cost him two divorces. He's got three kids. He almost declared bankruptcy. And, and on top of it, he attempted suicide last year. It blew my mind. This guy had sacrificed for us. He sacrificed in a way he'll pay for it for the rest of his life for us. And as I'm sitting there, here's what I start asking myself. What am I willing to sacrifice to introduce this man that can save eternity? What am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to give up? What am I willing to pay? What am I willing to endure to introduce him to the person of Jesus that changed my life? What am I willing to do? You know what stinks is so many people in the church say this, oh man, thanks for your service, I'll pray for you, and then walk away. I never used this line, but here's the line that I actually used for him. I said, dude, before that, he, he goes, you're getting a rare moment out of me. I never share this with people. And my response was, I'm actually a pastor. The only reason I used that was to pivot the conversation to talk about God. Otherwise, I keep that to myself. Usually that railroads conversations. People go, oh, you're a pastor? I'm out. <laughs> his, was, his was very different. He goes, you're a pastor? No blank. I was like, all right, sweet. We just started talking. We hung out in my garage for probably 45 minutes. He looked at me at one point and he goes, your snowblower is the easiest fix I'll have all day. I was like, glad that cost me $50. <laughs> Thanks, poor little stuff in the gas tank. You're good to go. But I literally said to him, it sounds like God's been going after you. It sounds like he's been pursuing you. It sounds like I had no reason for you to be here today other than this conversation. And he goes, you know, I've, I've kind of been looking for a church. Throw the invite out. I, Here's what I wanna ask you. What are you willing to sacrifice so that people might come to a knowledge of Jesus through you? To live into your calling to be the church, the hands and feet of Jesus, to go into the most broken places all over the world. What are you willing to sacrifice? God declares victory for you. But are you willing to give up your time? Are you willing to give up your treasure? Are you willing to give up your job, your security, your safety, your home? Are you willing to give up your reputation? Are you willing to, to sacrifice, to lay down everything if it meant just one person spend eternity in heaven? Are you willing to pay that? Jesus hanging on the cross said, yes. And if he is a pursuing God, then we are called to be a pursuing church. So before we sing, here's three easy things. This, this is it. This is, if I could boil it down, it looks like this. When you go out this week or when you go out today or set a reminder in your calendar, whatever it is, look for someone struggling. Look for someone hurting. Look for somebody gasping. Look for someone who just got horrible news. Look for someone in pain. And then do the opposite that we often do. Move towards it. Don't run away. Don't shut it down. Don't move towards their pain. The second one is this, join them in it. That means sit and say, I'm so sorry that you just got diagnosed with cancer. I'm so sorry you just lost a child. 
I'm so sorry you're not living paycheck to paycheck because of your job. I'm so sorry. And just sit. Don't fix. Sit. Cry. Hug. Pray. Sit with people like Jesus sits with us. And then the last one is this. Point them to Jesus with your words. Don't just say, they'll know I'm a Christian based on how I hug and love and cry. No, they'll know you're a Christian by the words that you say and how you point to your heavenly Father. Point them to Jesus. What Jesus declares to us is we win for the kingdom of God. Just pray together right now. God, we just come before you. We pray for opportunity. We pray that you would just change the climate of our world right now. We pray that you would change the climate uh, of our context, that you'd give us opportunities to sit with people who are hurting, who are struggling, who just got horrible news. God, I just pray that, that all of us, every person in this room that calls you Savior, I pray that you would give them opportunities today or this week that you would open doors to have a conversation about Jesus. You'd open a door to pray with somebody. You'd open a door to point them to the goodness that you, that you bring and that you offer and the sacrifice that you paid. I pray that you would use our church, God, that you would give us boldness, that you would give us courage, that you'd give us love and empathy for people who are broken, that you would move us into the places of pain, move us into the places of brokenness, move us into the places of danger so that we might usher in the kingdom of God and change the climate of eternity forever. God, use us, use us. We give our lives to you right now. When we pray this right now, if you agree, you pray this and you say this in the name of Jesus, everybody said together, amen. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in him. If you wanna take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com forward slash connect. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.